Well, this morning we'll get right into the word. Uh, over the last three weeks, we have spent some time looking back into church history, looking at specifically some of the key moments of the Protestant Reformation that took place in the 1500s. And we looked at some of the key events and the theses and, and the scriptures that were really the fuel of what God was doing at that time in the Reformation. And I want to step us forward today. We're not going to go back and look at key events today. I want us to, to see the, the same power at work there that is at work today. There's a phrase that's used often uh, as we think back to the Reformation events that was really striking at the heart of what the Reformation was all about and the theological truths that have come out of that time. In, in Latin, the phrase there on the screen is soli deo gloria, but most of us don't speak Latin in the room, so in English it is to the glory of God alone. Now, this phrase doesn't come to us from the pen of Luther or any of the other early reformers. It's actually a statement that's used by those who came a little later, looking back, reflecting on what took place, and summarizing and distilling that into something that was memorable. And I find the phrase soli deo gloria to be memorable. Maybe the Latin's not as memorable to you, so the English hopefully will stick in your mind. That life the reformers were teaching, as it was summarized later, was that everything should be done, our lives should be lived, to the glory of God alone. Now, I would argue, and I have been arguing for years, that this phrase and this idea that we are to live for the glory of God and his glory alone, not mixed with anything else, should not just define a historical era. We shouldn't look back and go, yes, the 1500s, yes, the 1600s, that was the era of glory to God alone, but here we are years later. No, I think all of our lives in every era should be lived with this same focus. It shouldn't just define the life of great men like Martin Luther or other reformers we could read about a long time ago. I want this phrase, this goal, this passion to mark my life. It's the goal of my ministry, too. So often, if you've received a physical mail from me in particular, sometimes by emails as well, I'll sign my letters with this phrase, soli deo gloria. If you've always wondered, what is this weird thing he's got at the bottom? I can't read that. That's what it is, soli deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. I love, I just love this phrase. I love it in Latin and in English. I have it in artwork that's hanging in my office. In my house, though, when we designed a custom piece of artwork and I wanted to put that on there, Malia said, you cannot put the Latin phrase on there. It has to be in English. She put her foot down. So in the house, it mostly is English. My office, you get the Latin phrase. But I have it on journals. I have it on coffee mugs, on stickers. I'm all, just, it's all over the place because for me, it's so central to living a faithful Christian life, something I need to keep in mind day by day, that my life, everything I do, is to bring glory to God. Now, my hope is, of course, if you've been here for a while, that's nothing new for you to hear. <laughs> in the years that I have been here as the, the pastor, I've preached in this room alone over 200 sermons. I was a little surprised when I looked at my notes and found that to be true. And one of the things that I have tried to convey in those messages over these years is this beautiful biblical truth that the Christian life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. That's our primary purpose in life. And I keep coming back to that idea. I use these words and these phrases intentionally because I think the scripture is abundantly clear. This is the point. It's why God created. It's why God saved us. It's why God has called us to a mission here. It's why he's left us on this earth. We have a purpose, and it's this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So a text that I've often cited and I've preached repeatedly from that stresses that if this is true, then there's practical application to be lived out. 
comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, to live wisely, I've had this conversation in the last few weeks with a few different people as we've talked about what it means to live wisely. To live wisely means two things. It means to have knowledge, and it means to apply that knowledge practically. It's not enough to just know some truths if they have no bearing on your life. Likewise, it's not enough to just live a good moral life but not have knowledge of who God is and what God has said and what God has done for us. To obey this command here in Ephesians 5, to live wisely, means that we must know the truth of what we were created for, what we are called to do, and then we must live in light of that truth in our day-to-day lives, like those moment-by-moment actions that we take. So as I was reflecting this week, I was thinking back to the first sermon I ever preached here as the pastor of this church. My primary text for that first message was one that we've considered and we've heard many other times. It wasn't just that first week that I was here. It comes from John's revelation that he has of Jesus given to him on the island of Patmos. And he says in Revelation chapter 5, as he's received these messages from Jesus to send to the churches, then now he gets this great vision of heaven and the throne. And there we see him tell us that John says, As I looked, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So in that very first sermon that I preached, we just focused in from this text. And as we walked through that sermon, this grand idea was, look, if this is what eternity is focused on, this is what's happening around the throne of God in heaven, is this full, complete focus on him, the greatness and the glory of him and who he is and what he has done, if this is true, that the living creatures, the elders, the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels are all singing out, worthy is the lamb. And then that sound is intensified by every creature in heaven on earth and in the sea and under the sea, all declaring together that all blessing and honor and glory and might forever belongs to him. The Father sitting on the throne, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Savior standing next to him. The one who's redeemed and reconciled all things unto himself. The one who scripture tells us is the final judge over all creation. If all of heaven is focused there on him in that worship, then this vision should radically impact our lives and the orientation of our days right now. The key point of my very first sermon here was, in the end, it's clear. Everything exists for the glory of God alone. So if we know that to be true, and for three and a half years I've tried to show you from Scripture time and again that this is true, if this truth is so clearly and powerfully understood around the throne of God, there at the end, then this truth and this focus should be pressing into our hearts, into our minds, into our actions, right here, right now in this life. 
And that should be what we go back to constantly to fight against all of the struggle that we face with these temporal lesser things that are vying for our attention and our passions right now. And they are, right? You feel it? I feel it. (laughs) I feel the draw of the phone all the time. The lure of social media, the temptation to just get that comment out there and see what likes I can get. There's a lot vying for our attention in this day and age, but to fight that, we should step back from the moment we're in and look to eternity and say, what is it that really matters around the throne of God? If we see that, if we see that, it will change how we live our lives now. Look, all throughout the Bible, it's evident that ultimately glory belongs to God and to him alone, and everything exists to bring him glory. Creation, the Bible tells us, was made to glorify God. That's why he has created everything he's created. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now you get this. Like, this is why everything exists. All the grass, all the flowers, the sky, the expanse of space, every star in the universe, every person ever made, all of it exists to bring glory to God. Why? Because He is the God worthy of infinite praise and glory. And not just a little bit of praise and glory, unlimited praise and glory. He deserves all of it. So this is why God has made stars and planets that we can know intellectually must exist out there, but we can't see them, let alone ever go visit them, right? It's why there's a whole universe out there that most of humanity never even got to glimpse. So so we see such a small piece of it with the naked eye. And there's all of this beyond it. Why? To glorify God. That's it. They exist to give infinite praise and glory to the one who has created them. That's just a a big view, right? Let's go down to the small view. On a smaller level, this is why the flowers bloom. And they bloom in fields that humans never go to, never see. It's why the birds and the wildlife are sustained day by day. Ultimately, it's not just so we can go hunt and eat them. (laughs) No, they're all there. They all, their life is sustained moment by moment by God to bring him glory. That's why everything exists, all of creation, is to glorify this God who has made them. But not only does God create all things for his glory, he also acts in and upon his creation for his own glory. Repeatedly throughout the Bible, this is the answer to the question, why does God do what God does? Why does he do something or why does he not do something? Over and over again, the answer is given when the question is answered, he has acted or not acted for his glory. So let's talk about not acting for a moment. God's mercy and forbearance not to destroy rebel sinners who repeatedly violate his commands, repeatedly commit grand cosmic treason against him, moment by moment. The reason God doesn't utterly destroy them after the first second of rebellion is so that he can bring himself glory. In Isaiah 48, he says it plainly. Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11 It's for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And listen to verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. 
For how should my name be profaned? No, my glory I will not give to another. (laughs) The reason we're drawing breath right now isn't because we've earned it or we deserve it. It's because of the mercy of God. This is his point. He's merciful. He's kind. He forbears people who sin over and over and over again, all for the sake of his name, his glory being made much of. So that when you and I realize we don't deserve the breath that we're drawing, we don't deserve the life that we have, we would turn and praise him for it. This is why he acts in this way. God acts in mercy for the sake of his glory, and he also acts in grace for the sake of his glory too. So mercy is not giving people what they deserve. It's not the righteous judgment that you and I have earned for our sins that we've all walked in here with. He's merciful not to judge us for those And he's also gracious to take from us those things and give us what we could never earn, love, salvation, eternal life. None of us have earned that. And it is God's grace that gives that to people. Why? For the sake of his glory. Salvation's all about the glory of his grace being known. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Do you understand that? That's the, the point. That's why he's done what he has done in redeeming a people, so that we would praise his glorious grace. He chooses to save. He chooses to pour out spiritual life, to give us every blessing that we have, to declare us holy and make his people justified, blameless through Christ's atoning death. All of it is done so that we would praise his glorious grace, so that we would live for his glory alone. This is the central thing. This is why everything exists. It's why God has created. It's why God is merciful not to destroy. It's why God is gracious to save. God's glory is at the center of everything. But far, far too often, we do not live like this is true. See, we don't live solely Deo Gloria. For God's glory alone. We live for God's glory sometimes. When it's convenient. When we go to church. When we give him five minutes. We read our Bible in the morning. We pray right before we eat. The moments of God's glory. Giving it to him. And then we add a whole bunch of other stuff into our lives. Pursue a whole bunch of other glory. And the Reformation and and the Bible behind the Reformation would tell us. No, no, no. You don't exist to give God some glory and take some glory for yourself. You exist to give glory to God alone. But we get distracted. We set our passions onto other things. Our deceitful little hearts, that's how the Bible talks about our hearts. Our culture doesn't talk that way, right? Whatever you feel deep down, that's, that's your truth. Live it out. The Bible says your little heart is deceitful above all things. And only the fool listens to his heart instead of the word of the living God. 
But our little hearts convince us that lesser things should fill our focus. Sin, the Bible tells us, entangles us so easily in this life and holds us back from living for the glory of God alone. We're quick to convince ourselves. We'll give him a little glory over here and we'll take a little glory for ourselves over there. God calls us instead to give him glory above everything else in not just some of the things we do, but in all that we do. Colossians 3.17, a text I hope you know well. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says the same. So, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, but we don't often live this way, do we? And we don't, eat, we don't even eat and drink to the glory of God, though it's expressly told that we should do it that way, right? Like how many of you have, right, you, you know, it's busy, it's quick, I just got to get something to eat, and so I'm going to grab it and stuff it in my mouth and then, you know, carry on with my thing. Like, you, you know, there's no pause, there's no reflection, there's no thankfulness in your heart. It's just cramming in the burger and fries or, you know, whatever it is. Like even, it, but even in that simple thing, right, we're in violation. What God says, hey, the fact that you can have the hamburger and the french fries, those are gifts from me. The fact that you have the money to go through the drive through I mean, all of these things, it's all designed that we would give him praise and glory for it. And yet far, far too often, we fail to do this. So it's why we must be, as people, individually, exactly what Luther noted rightly in the first of those 95 theses we looked at two, week, uh, two weeks ago. If you remember, he said that we must be people who repent, not just once, not just once a week when we go to the confessional. But when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. So repentance, so we're all on the same page. It's, it's, a, it's a religious word, yes, but understand what it means. It means that we would identify our sin. We would see it. And we would turn from it. We would put it to death so that we could live in righteousness, so that we could glorify God in all that we do. Look, taking sin seriously, killing our sin is vital to glorifying God. If we coddle sin, if we ignore sin, if we try to hide our sin, it not only dishonors God, but it destroys our souls. As the Puritan Dr. John Owen so succinctly warns, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have to take sin seriously if we want to take God's glory seriously. We have to take repentance seriously if we want to take God's glory seriously. We have to put to death sin and turn away from it and stop living in it if we want to live for the glory of God alone. Peter reminds us in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, how important this really is. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This text takes us right back to where we started then, doesn't it? The time that we are living in, the days we are living in, are evil. And it's short. (laughs) Far, far shorter than some of us want to acknowledge. And the Bible would warn us, the wise person knows that. The wise person prays, Lord, help me number my days. Like every day, Lord, help me make the most of this day. We should live soberly because of the reality of how short this time on this earth really is. We should take sin seriously right now, day by day, because the end of all things, Peter tells us, is near. There's no license to put this off. There's no, take it seriously next week, or when you hit this age, when you're at that milestone. Wherever you are right now today, hear Peter say, the end is near. Be Sober-minded. Repent. Put to death sin so we can give glory to God in all that we do. So practically, as I was thinking about this, it takes me right back to those 59 one another commands that we just spent five weeks looking at recently. Three times in this very passage, that phrase, one another, occurs, right? And so I said in that series, when we read any of the one another commands, my hope, my prayer is that after having spent weeks looking at them, more of them will be coming to mind every time you see that phrase in Scripture. You'd be pulling in these other one another commands because they speak very practically to how we ought to live. So just to summarize what we said for five weeks is that, look, you and I were called to know one another. God intends for real knowledge of each other, of our lives to, to be had between us. And if that's real and genuine, then it's going to expose the reality that's true of every single one of us in this room, on the stage or off the stage. We're all sinners. And we all make mistakes. And we all fall short. And we all have much to repent of. And if that's true, and we're going to know that about one another, but still live with one another, then we're going to have to commit to one another. We're going to have to grow with one another. We're going to have to do the hard work that it takes of having conversations and coming to understanding and seeking reconciliation. We're going to have to do all of that over and over and over and over again if we're going to obey the most repeated command of all, love one another. And we need to. We need to do these things. We need to love one another. We need to engage with one another because the ultimate purpose for everything in our lives is to glorify God. That's what we're called to do, to worship God with one another. He's the point of all of it. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his glory. That's, that's it. That's what our lives are to center on. We are created and called to live, as Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it means hearing Peter say that in his first letter that we also heed Peter's words from his second letter. The very last words that Peter pens, the words that I have said time and again is the banner that I have tried to set over my life, my ministry. 2 Peter 3.18, where he commands us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Again, let's go back to where we started. In eternity, as we read about in Revelation 5, all the glory is focused on him. It's not worthy is the lamb and how amazing are these people and good job for what you did, Jesus, and wasn't this stuff awesome over here? It's all simply on him. The magnification of who God is, what God has done, how much God has forgiven, how he has redeemed and justified and sanctified unworthy multitudes who are standing before him redeemed and reconciled at his throne. But notice that Peter says, not just focus on the day of eternity and get it right in the day of eternity. He says, we are called to have this focus now. Now and to the day of eternity. We should be growing in grace, in the experience of God's grace, day by day. We should be seeking to grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ in every way right now. To not grow, as we've often noted, is to die. To not obey this command is to sin. The good news is, is in eternity, we get it right. There, all the recipients of God's grace and mercy will declare with the angels and the elders and the living creatures, and together we will sing out, as Revelation 5.12 tells us, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is what really matters, and it is what we will get and understand and focus on in eternity. His glory will be made much of. In eternity, the shadows of this life won't blur our vision anymore. Praise God. We won't let the things of this world distract us anymore. They will have faded away. We won't be held captive by the bonds of sin which so easily entangle us here. Now on that day, our focus is set right. We will purely and rightfully glorify God as he deserves. Him, him alone, what we were created and saved to do. But my prayer is, my passion as a minister of God as one who's called to preach the gospel is that God's people wouldn't wait to eternity to get this right. Amen. <laughs> that we'd start right here, right now. Our lives, moment by moment, day by day, would be marked by this pursuit of giving glory to God in all things and to him alone. My desire is that we'd be people who live wisely, who know the truth and then apply the truth. That would be people who glorify God in how we are living right now. That our lives would be testimonies of the glory of God. That we would reflect him in our day-to-day -day actions and all that we do. That we would genuinely believe the gospel message and be transformed by the gospel message. And live our lives focused on the mission of God. Not distracted, not led off. That we would be proclaiming his glory in all that we would do. Knowing that the gospel reveals the glory of his grace and kindness towards us, first and foremost. Ephesians chapter, one, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, a text we've read in its entirety many times, but here again, speaking to every one of us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath 
just like the rest of mankind. But God, Christian, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, not by earning it, not by being better, not by you're the one who's got it all right. No, by grace, you have been saved and raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, get this, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. This never gets old. This never ends. This is it. This is eternity. Lived solely Deo Gloria. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the message to every single one of us who is saved. His glory and his grace is to be on display in our stories, our lives. That's the whole point. The whole reason you have the breath in your lungs you have right now. That he would be glorified in you. And none of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. None of us were or are perfect. It's all completely dependent upon God's grace at work in us. It's why we praise him. It's why we should now take seriously living wisely, repenting of our sins, striving to kill sins. Because his grace is so glorious to have saved us from our own sins. How could we walk in the thing which caused our Savior to bleed and die for us? This should be central to us so that we could rightly in the coming ages, as he's declaring the immeasurable riches of his goodness and grace, we would in the coming ages praise and glorify the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Because we also know how Paul continues this sobering thought that should drive each of us to repentance and lives of grace. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he says, Remember, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us all one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Our whole existence is to glorify God. Year after year, I've said this to you, sermon after sermon, I've said this to you because it's, as Luther said, I preach the gospel to my people every week because every week my people forget the gospel. (laughs) You know these truths intellectually. Most of you have been in this room and heard me say it countless times. But Luther was driving at what every one of us would know if we accurately look at our own heart. We don't live this way. We forget this. Sometimes we forget this before we even get out of the room. (laughs) And we're on to pursuing our own glory yet again. Not a single one of us have earned God's grace towards us. It's grace, undeserved, unearned. And those of us who have received it ought to live lives radically transformed by that. 
We once were far off. There once was hostility between us and God. But he has broken down the wall. His blood has covered all our sins. He has forgiven. So he tells us, now we too are called to reflect him, to forgive, to get rid of hostility, to put away malice and anger, to pursue reconciliation. This is the challenge of God to each one of us, to each one of us. So may these words transform our hearts. May they lead us into righteousness and obedience right here and now. I'm going to pray that God, by his grace, would make this glorious truth awaken our lives and our hearts. That in this very moment, his Holy Spirit would come and convict and transform us so that we would glorify him in all that we do, moment by moment, day by day, starting now. Father, I thank you for your word. As we've reflected on the great gifts that have come down to us, the clarity of the theological truths that have come to us from the time of the Reformation, nothing stands above the fact that the Reformation has given us the gift of your words in our language. But today, as I have stood here and read text after text after text, I have done so in a way that every person in this room can hear you speaking and can understand your words through the Scripture. Lord, what a gift it is that you speak to your people today. We understand, Lord. We have this knowledge now as we have spent this time seeing this from your word that indeed we do exist. Everything exists to bring you glory. So Lord, what we're asking for right now is that by your Holy Spirit coming and applying this word to our hearts, beginning to transform us and change us, to expose the sin and lead us to repentance and putting that to death, Lord, that through the work of you right now here in this place, doing the things that are impossible for anyone to do in any other person, Lord, that by your power, your grace, hearts and lives would begin to be transformed and changed. That we would not be content anymore. We would not be naive anymore about living our lives in a way that does not give you the full glory and credit. That, Lord, from this moment forward, we would be people committed to a life soli deo gloria. That you and you alone would receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor and everything would be pointed up to you in every moment. We ask you to grant this in us, every one of us, from the youngest child to the oldest adult, to the one who's grown up in church and the one who's had their first time in church. In every heart, I ask, I pray, I beg you, God, do what only you can do so that you and you alone receive the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.